0: Good morning, church. It is so great to be with you. And uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. We want to welcome you to this experience. We look forward to this every week. I don't know if you look forward to it as much as we do, but we're so glad that you're here and uh, so glad to get to have this experience around Jesus uh, together. Today we're continuing. We're in week two of a series we're calling Overflow. Overflow. And we're talking about what does it mean when you realize all that God has for you and you are just overflowing with it. Now, this is not a prosperity message of God's going to give you more and bless you more and do all these things for you. It's, it's really a perspective change of realizing we have all we need. And when you realize that, it ignites parts of your faith and ignites the ability to see Jesus in a new way. So if you've got your journals with you today, go ahead and get those out. Uh, We are in week two. You'll see a spot to take notes with. We encourage you every week. uh, Get a journal. Bring it back with you. Keep this as a reference when uh, you're looking back later and going, yeah, what was God teaching me during that time? You can just reference your notes here. So I encourage you to do that. Get your Bibles out. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. you got to physical analog Bible that's in the New Testament. So go ahead and, and get your spot there. And if you've got a Bible app on the phone, I encourage you to get that out as well. And, and, and like we do every week, we want you to read the text for yourself uh, so you can dive into God's word. Now, last week we began this series talking about fear and how one of the reasons why whenever you talk about stuff or money or any of your attitudes to it, we get really weird because there is so much fear inside of us over this topic. And I made the point last week that if you can't trust God with your finances, you shouldn't trust him with your eternity. Now we get into things that Jesus said and the New Testament writers said about money and stuff. And, and we're quick to go, yeah, that's, that's great, but that won't work. Uh, but when you do that, what you're basically saying is, Jesus, I will trust you for spiritual things, but the practical things you're just not very good at. And I would suggest to you, it's, it's all or nothing. Either he is who he says he is, and we trust him for all things, or we go, hey, he's not, he's not worth trusting. in. And hopefully you realize um, he's worth trusting with your eternity, and he's worth trusting with your finances. And we're beginning to, to shift our perspectives when it comes to that. And I said last week, I think God desires for us to live in the overflow, that you would just feel every day you wake up, I am overflowing with what I need. Who could I bless today? That is an incredible place to be when you have that perspective. Now, I want to have part two to last, because you might be going, yeah, Jeremy, that's great, but what if I don't have enough for overflow? I'm with you. I'm not afraid. I don't want to be dominated by fear. I want to experience overflow, but what if I just don't have enough? What if the numbers don't add up? Well, I I understand where that comes from. I I did some updated numbers this week to see where we're at. The average household with credit card debt has $16,000 in credit card debt. The average household with an auto loan has more than $29,000. The average uh, student loan debt is $50,000. The average mortgage debt in Oregon is $218,000. The average mortgage debt in Washington is more than that, $250,000. So let's just close in prayer and just feel really good about ourselves staring at these numbers, right? Now, I don't know how you rank. I don't know how you're looking at that going, oh, I'm better on that one. I'm worse on that one. You know, I don't know where you're at with all those. Those are average numbers. But, but you look at all that and you go, well, this doesn't look good for us. I mean, we, we, we don't have like necessarily overflowing. Like, like we're in, in the negative numbers here. We've got massive amounts of debt. And so it leads to a follow-up question. Do I have to have a certain amount in order to be generous? Is there a prerequisite for generosity? So are you you here today and you're going, well, that would be great if it it applied to me. But it doesn't apply to me because I don't have enough. I'm not overflowing. I'm in debt. I'm I'm buried. I, I don't feel like I can experience this. Is there something that goes before it? Let me show you something that Jesus said before we get into what Paul said. Let me show you something Jesus said that you might have heard this before. Um, But it's it's an interesting argument when you really stop to consider the point Jesus is making. This is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Okay, we got that. Yeah, you're going to have to pick. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then he concludes, you cannot serve both God and Money. I don't know what you were expecting Jesus to say at the end of that sentence. I mean, Jesus basically saying, hey, you're going to have a battle for your allegiance. You're going to have to decide. It's God or—now, you might have thought, well, there's a lot better things to rival God for our devotion than money, right? But to Jesus, that's what—he puts that against God. Now, let me make this clear. You can pursue God and have money. He's not saying that, hey, if you pursue God, you'll never see money. But he's saying if you are pursuing money, you are not pursuing God. And you might look at that and go, well, that just seems unfair. You know, I think I can pursue both. I can pursue God, I can pursue money, and I'm doing just fine. And, in fact, I would say that's probably the the majority of arguments of of Americans today. That I can pursue God and I can pursue money and there is no problem with me doing that. Let me give you another number. The average American gives away 2.6% percent of their income any of us feel really proud by that number look at us we are amazing people who are serving God and we are serving money and we're doing both really well we're doing one of them really well but we'd go wow that that number doesn't look right I'd encourage you if you're a Christian today and and you're you're an American Christian we, we should expect that number to look a lot different than it looks but that's, that's the reality. So maybe Jesus was on to something when he said, there is going to be a rival battle for your heart and for your mind. And you're going to have to decide which one are you chasing after, even though we might not want to think of it in those terms. Now you might be saying, hey, Jeremy, yeah, but you don't understand. My life is just especially difficult. I mean, here's a situation I've got, and, and I, I hear your argument, but, but it's, just, it's really different for me. I can't be generous because my life is so rough. My life is so bad. I finished a book this week. Uh, called The Mysteries of the Middle Ages. And I love, I love reading about history, and, and it was telling you know, a lot of how we got to some of the things that we have today and, and through you know, medieval times. But I was reading about kings and queens and the way that they lived. And, and there's one passage in particular that really stood out to me, and I wanna share it with you. Uh, because I think when we think about kings and queens, we have this very lofty notion of, well, that would have been nice. And maybe you got sucked into the royal wedding, you know, and you were all into it, and you're going, man, those guys have it made. Or, or maybe, you know, centuries ago at least, they had it made. Let me just tell you what life was, was like for them. It was something, I, I, I confess, I had never spent the time to, to wrap my mind around this detail that the author shared. And, and when I thought about it, it, it changed a few things for me. So let me, let me share it with you. Here's what the passage says. Plumbing was unknown. And the tradition of public bathing, though as much a part of the Greco-Roman heritage as plumbing had been, had perished beyond Byzantium. Because individual bathing in a copper basin in a drafty castle could lead so easily to chill, then to fever and to death, kings and queens seldom bathe more than once a month. It gets worse. (laughs) Those without servants seldom bathe more than once or twice a year. Despite their silks and linens, their frequent changes of costume, their liberal burning of Arabian incense, the royals stank. I love that line. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 you know, looked good, but they really stank. As did their retinues. But wait, it gets worse. More than this. The chamber pot was the sole device for receiving human waste. Ever thought about that? Uh, a small castle, or even a large one might become downright uninhabitable after many weeks of residence by a group. Ew, is the right reaction to that. And you're going, oh, that, that's not so great as it is in my mind, you know, of their life. When's the last time you woke up and said, God, I am overflowing in my gratitude for my hot shower that I'm going to take this morning. I don't. I just kind of assume, yeah, I'm going to take a hot shower every morning. That's a right that I have. And yet you realize, wow, that's actually something amazing that, that kings and queens hundreds of years ago who had everything that the world could offer them didn't have those things that today we just go, yeah, well, big deal. See, it's about perspective shift. And, and when you begin to realize what Jesus and the New Testament writers are inviting us to experience, it doesn't so much change your situation as much as it changes the way you look at your situation and you realize that every one of us has an ability to live the life that they're inviting us into. And so let's study this together. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll begin reading with verse 1. And I want to show you what Paul says about some real people in a real context. Uh, and, and he's referencing a church community. And he's going to tell us something about them that, that if you're paying attention, it is going to sound weird to you. And we're going to let it mess with us. Uh, and so it's been messing with me all week. Welcome to my shame, you know, my misery. You can, you can get it messed with you as well, all right? Here's what Paul says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Okay, real people, real church context. Here's what Paul says. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. If you're paying attention to the details of that sentence, you're going, that sounds weird. So let me show you Paul's math here, okay? You have a severe trial plus extreme poverty. What does that lead to? Rich generosity. Anyone else think Paul's math is off? Like, uh, Paul, those don't lead to that. Like, I, I don't know how you're doing your math here, but, but if you have a severe trial and you compound that with extreme poverty, you are not going to get rich generosity, or so we think, This is the way Paul describes this church. See, we usually think the less I have, the more I have to keep. I have to keep it because I have no margin there. And so I've got to do it. And yet what you realize is that generosity is always an intentional decision we make to choose God over money. And it's available to all of us to make this decision. Now, part of the problem is, is, again, the perspective that we have, and, and I, I'll use an analogy here to, to illustrate this. Um, how many of you like playing the game Monopoly? Any Monopoly fans in the room today? I've learned through services so far, Monopoly is dying in, in, in the culture, okay? So I don't, I, I'm like, I love Monopoly, but evidently there's not a lot of us left. Let me explain how Monopoly looks, okay? Because uh, evidently a number of you haven't played this in decades, now, Monopoly is this, you know, game. You start here, you go around the board, and you're trying to acquire property. And if you acquire a Monopoly of one color of property, then you can put houses and hotels on it. And I love Monopoly. And my kids want to play Monopoly now. And they, want, they can play Monopoly for hours, and I love it because I can smoke them at it. I mean, they are not good at Monopoly yet. And so I take advantage of that, and I, you know, I'm the good father that teaches them life lessons, you know, as, as I beat them in Monopoly don't judge me. Uh, but here's the way Monopoly works. It's a zero-sum game. So what that means is if I buy a property, there are now less properties for you to have. And, and, and if you play Monopoly, and, and evidently you haven't in a while, but if you play Monopoly, like your first couple turns, if you don't land on a property you get to buy and everyone else is buying, you get this anxiety. They're like, I'm falling behind and my kids are going to take this away. You know, and it's like, I gotta land on something fast, because you realize there are only so many properties, there are only so many houses, there are only so many hotels, and I have to accumulate more. And every time you accumulate something, it is less for me directly. Now, here's how you know if you're playing Monopoly. In your mind, are you just trying to accumulate more and more? And what is the what is the end game for you? Where you go, well, when would you have enough? You know what most people answer is, well, just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. And then you get the little bit more. Well, I just, I need a little bit more. It's Monopoly. I just got to keep acquiring more and more. There is no finish line. There is no end in sight, just the accumulation of more. Here's how you also know if you're playing it. When someone else tells you about something really good that happened to them, does it bother you? Do you feel like somehow their success or their good fortune is now somehow degrading or diminishing what you have. Oh, you got that promotion? Oh, that, that must be nice. Oh, you got that new job? Oh, you got that new car? Oh, you, you just moved into a, a new house? I mean, all these things are triggers for us. We go, well, I, my, my stuff isn't good enough, and I, I, I need more. And, and you realize you're, you're playing Monopoly. You're, you're living life as a game of Monopoly. Now, here's what I would tell you. I love the game of Monopoly. It is a horrendous strategy to live your life as a game of Monopoly if you call yourself a Christian. It's not not in line with what God has called us to do. Instead, I would give you a different game. Uh, Do I have any Uno fans in the house today? Okay, okay. I found you. I I got you guys. Uno is a very different game than Monopoly. In fact, right on the back of, of the Uno case, if you go, well, what's the point of this? It says, race to get rid of all your cards. That's the point. You're trying to get out first. You're trying to get your cards rid of first. And so if you've ever played this game, you shout confidently, defiantly, uno, when you get down to one card and you're letting everybody else know, I'm about to go out. You know, and you're looking, you make eye oh, contact with all of them. Now imagine that you're playing Monopoly with, with your family. You're having a get-together, and your crazy Aunt Tammy Has a whole bunch of cards that she's holding. And so you go, uno. And she goes, yeah, look at me. I got 40 cards. I've got one of every color, every number. I am dominating this game. Um, Tammy, I don't think you understand what game you're playing. Uh, That might work in in Monopoly, but you're not playing Monopoly. You're playing Uno, and you're losing because you have so many cards. In fact, the fun part of of Uno is when you have, like, draw two, draw four, and they're just like, oh, man, and you're like, yes, look at how much stuff you have. And that's the whole fun of the game. Now, what if, sorry, you're learning a lot about me today. (laughs) I'm revealing too much. Uh, Now, what if we were to live our life, not as if we were playing Monopoly and we are trying to accumulate as much. But if the goal is that when you die, you have given everything away. That you die with no cards in your hand. You yell, uno, with your final breath, and you go to Jesus. <laughs> now the reality is, someone's go, well, I'm going to have huge savings in retirement. I'm going to have properties. Guess what? You, you don't keep any of that. When you, die. you know, it all goes back in the box when you're done playing Monopoly. Like, it, it just, you're not taking it with you. And yet some of us, we live as if the goal is to die with as much stuff as possible. I would suggest to you that's not the goal of life. It's far more like a game of Uno. To go, how much could you give away? And could you die with, with, with everybody else being blessed by the way that you live? Wouldn't it be amazing if the older you got, the more aggressive you gave you say, like, I, don't, I don't need this stuff. I'm just going to give more and give more and give more. And yet it tends to be the opposite. The older we get, the more nervous we get. Well, what if I don't have enough? And the fear that we talked about last week starts to creep back in. I would suggest to you, Jesus is inviting you to play Uno. He's going, guess what? Let's get rid of all your cards and watch how fun this game is going to be. Watch how fun it is to get, give that away to others, to overflow to the people around you. And you don't have to accumulate all of these cards in your deck. So, my question is which game are you playing? When you look at the way that you view your money, the way you view your stuff, which game are you playing? Let's keep reading. Paul's going to elaborate on this church and again he's just you know set an equation that makes no sense to us these guys are playing uno they're they're giving stuff away and it doesn't make any sense and he's going to elaborate because in case you're confused by his math uh, he's going to give you more logic that makes no sense okay so here's what he says for I testify verse three that they gave as much as they were able okay Paul I'm with you here I know what that feels like this is what I'm able to do I'll give that much okay now we're with you And even beyond their ability. Okay, Paul, you can't do that. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. How on earth do you give beyond your ability. Paul, this, this logic makes no sense until you try it. You ever tried it? You ever felt God nudging you to, to give beyond your ability? You know what you realize is you'll find out how much you trust him really quickly. Because that moment you sense God going, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do more. Let's, you got too many cards in your hand. Let's, let's give some more away. And you're going, whoa, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. I remember when Michelle and I got married, and I shared this last week, that we, we first lived in an apartment together for our first year. And, and there was a season there where uh, Michelle was still fill, finishing up college. Um, I had an intern salary. She was working at Starbucks. And, and we didn't make much money at all. I mean, like, very little amounts of money. But we didn't have kids yet. We didn't have a huge, you know, house payment. It was just the two of us. But I remember one time we would we'd sit down and around our table. We would look at our budget. We'd write out all the numbers. This is what we're going to bring in. This is what's going out. And then we would say, God, what do you want us to do for generosity? How do we give of what we have? And so we felt like hey, this is what God wants us to give, and so we would do that. And I remember looking at it going, um, Michelle, these numbers don't add up. They just don't work. There's no way I can get these equations to add up. So we had a decision to make. Now, you've, you've been there before. We realize, oh, I don't have enough. So what do we normally cut? Well, the the, the giving part, I don't have to do that. that that's optional. So let, let's, let's just, you know, cut back on that and get back, back down to 2.6%, which everyone else does, and then we'd be fine. But we didn't feel like that's what God was asking us to do. So we said, all right, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to give what we feel like we're supposed to give, even though I know on paper this will not work. I remember the stress of that, the, the dependency on God going, Jesus, if you don't show up here, this isn't going to work for us. And I look back on that season now with an amazing fondness because somehow we had what we needed. Somehow Jesus kept showing up and, and meeting our needs. I don't say this to say, hey, if you give beyond your ability, you know, Jesus will double whatever you gave. Uh, there's, no, there's no algorithm that he promises you here. But, but I will tell you that when you get into that mode of I'm going to give what, what makes me a little bit nervous to give, but I'm going to do that. You will start inviting Jesus in to your finances going, all right. You're going to have to do something here because these numbers don't look good. And you begin to get to the kind of math that we're reading about with these early churches in the New Testament. Where they gave beyond their ability in the midst of all the situations you would tell them, now is not the time to give. And they go, yeah, but but we're going to. We're going to be generous. And so we learn about giving beyond their ability. The author Lewis Smead says it like this. Love drives us beyond the limits of our resources even if it cannot undo those limits. For those of you who are married, you remember falling in love with your spouse? How logical was that? Not very. You, you did some crazy things in the dating process. You'd stay up till all hours of the night talking to the person on the phone. You would drive any distance to go see them. This is what love does. Love, love drives us beyond the limits of what we think makes sense. But what if you realize love could drive your generosity and the love that you have for the people around you and for this community, you could go, I love it so much, it's gonna drive me beyond the limits of our resources. But love will not undo the limits, you still have the limits. And that's where Jesus enters the equation. And you go, All right, God, you're gonna to have to show up. You're gonna to have to do something here, because we're gonna give beyond our ability. And most of us go, I just don't think it works like that. I read some studies this week in preparation for this, and I wanna share some shocking statistics with you that, that I came across, and I was blown away by the numbers here. Studies have shown that the less you have, the more you give. Uh, and in fact, one study that I read this week said that on average, those who have less give more than 65% more than those who have more. So the lower, you know, the, the less you have, the more lucky you are to give more than 65% of your percentage of your household income compared to those. Who have a lot more. And I was reading this study, and I was like, why on earth would this be true? And one of the, the suggestions the study said as to why this might be true is that the less you have, the more in tune you are with the needs of others. Because you know what it feels like to, to have those needs. And the more you have, the more comfortable you get, the more numb you get, the less you remember what other people are experiencing and you just start, stop caring about that. And they're saying that maybe that's why this happens. Another study I read talked about uh, how you saw this played out in the midst of the recession. That in, the, in the Great Recession, in 2008, and the years following, that what you actually saw is that those who had smaller incomes, their giving went up in, in response to that. And those who had larger incomes, their giving went down. Now let me show you a chart here. And, and if you're one of those people that your eyes just kind of gloss over when you see a chart, hang with me, I'm only going to show you one. Uh, but this is, this is absolutely amazing when you consider it. Check this out. This is the, the change of income or change of giving in, regards to the, in response to the recession. Okay? So when things get hard, how do we respond to that? Here's what this shows. If you made $25,000 or less, your response to the recession was to increase your giving 16.6%. Those in the, the smallest income category increased their giving in response to the recession the most. You notice the trend going all the way down. You get down to here. Those with $200,000 or more decreased their giving in response to the recession 4.5%. Now, the, the break-even point here in, in this uh, study was that when you made more than hundred grand, that is when all of a sudden your, your giving didn't go up, it went down. Now, here's what's, you know, so weird about this. We think, well, when, when times are hard, when the recession hits, man, that's when you really need more. So you have that margin. And what you realize is the numbers don't indicate that. That those who had less were the ones that were willing to go, oh, no, there are needy people around us. Let's increase our giving on their behalf. Now, let's consider this. From God's point of view, if you're God and you want to create more generous people, and this is true, what should you do? Take away our stuff. (laughs) I mean, if those numbers are true, Right, You would go, well, if God wants to develop a heart of generosity in his people, he should give us less. And then we're more likely to give more. And I wonder, I think most of us, we're not praying that God would give us less. And yet, from God's point of view, maybe he's going, I just want you to be generous. What's it going to take for you to develop a heart of generosity? What's it going to take for you to, to trust me enough to live in the overflow the reality is the numbers are opposite of what we may think. Now there's this phrase that Paul uses in describing the Macedonian churches that, that I just think is such a, a bizarre phrase. He says, they urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in this service. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing what they had. It wasn't like, you know, the Macedonian churches were like, oh, we've got this severe trial. We've got this extreme poverty, but... You guilted us into, so we're going to help out others. No, they urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing what they had with others in the midst of the severe trial and the extreme poverty. Is that how you view the opportunity of giving to those in need around you? It reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite stories. Uh, Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol, and you may have uh, seen a movie version of this, or perhaps you've read it. There's this, there's this scene in it that I think about often because uh, the first time I read it, it kind of rocked me. And, and I read this book every year. Uh, but if you know the story of A Christmas Carol, it's about Scrooge. And, and Scrooge is, is visited by three different ghosts, you know, ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. But before that happens, he's visited by the ghost of his old business partner, this guy that was just as selfish as him. And, and it's this conversation that sets the stage for the rest of what's going to happen to Scrooge in this story. And again, if you know Scrooge, he's this older guy. He's got more than he ever would need, but he gives none of it away, and he hoards it all. And, and, and so there's this moment where they're trying to convince him to view the world differently. And Marley, his, his old ghost of a partner, shows him something that rattles Scrooge and sets the stage for what's to come. Now, I want to read this to you, and uh, again, if you've uh, read it, you, you've read it. This is a small scene, and a lot of the movies don't even capture this scene. But this scene is one of the most profound parts of this story uh, when you understand what Dickens was doing in setting up this journey of Scrooge. Here's what it says as he's having this conversation with the ghost of Marley. It says, The apparition walked backward from him. And at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear. For on the raising of the hand, he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window. Desperate in his curiosity, and he looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost uh, in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle who cried piteously. At being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Dickens describes this scene, again, obviously this is a fictional story. Describes this scene where Scrooge looks out the window and sees all these ghosts flying around. These are all the wealthy people who had died, and they're all chained, and they have all these things of, of these signs that they were never generous, they never cared about others. And, and yet their torture in this scene is that they see people in need, and they want to help them, but they have lost the ability to do so. And so there's this scene of this ghost, that Scrooge knows, and the ghost sees this woman with an infant. He wants so desperately to help her because he sees that this is what matters now, and if he can't. He's lost the ability. I, I remember thinking, man... The the power of the story is that Scrooge wakes up Christmas morning realizing he still has a chance to help those around him. He hasn't lost it forever. Is that how we view our opportunity to bless those around us? As this privilege that we would we would urgently plead to have the privilege of serving those? Or do we view it as an obligation or as a burden? Ugh there's someone else that's needy. So you start to realize we're. We're missing something here. This is the way the early church modeled generosity. They were pleading for the opportunity in the midst of having nothing because they knew that there was something incredible for them to experience. Now, theologically, here's how I'd say this. And I've, I've said this before if you've been around. The fullest picture that we see of God, if you ever wonder what's God like, is Jesus on the cross. It is Jesus pouring himself out for us. That If you could take a snapshot and go, how do I think about God? What is God actually like? Think about Jesus pouring himself out with his arms stretched, not retaliating, not taking what he could take, but giving himself for us. That is what God really looks like. That's the best picture we've ever seen of what God is like. Now, what did Jesus have on the cross? No money. He He had been crucified naked. He's within moments of his life. And yet he gave everything. And that's what God looks like. And here's what this means for us. That we look most like Jesus when we pour ourselves out for others. If Jesus on the cross is the fullest picture of God, then when you and I imitate that behavior and we begin to pour ourselves out for others, then we start to look like him. You want to know how people are going to see Jesus? It's not because we're just gonna tell them some great, profound theological idea. They go, oh, I never heard that argument before. It's when they see Jesus in us. And they go, I don't know what you're doing. Those numbers make no sense. Uh, There's no logic in this. I can't wrap my brain around it. What on earth is happening? They go, oh, it's Jesus. And I'm just overflowing because that's what he did for us. And I wanna do it for others. Now imagine today you go home after service and you grab something to eat. You get, get up, you know, pulling up to your house and you realize that Jesus is on your doorstep. And he's waiting for you. they are like, oh, Jesus, great to see you. He's like, hey, can I come in? Oh, we'd love to have you. Come on, come on in. And you sit around the table. You're going, what, what's going on? Why, why are you here, Jesus? He goes, hey, I'm here to do a financial audit. <laughs> what's the first reaction that runs through you? Would it, would it be one of like guilt? Like, uh-oh. Maybe nervousness? Maybe some shame? Oh, I, I hope he doesn't ask about this. I hope he doesn't want to know why I why, you know, put my money there, what, why I spent this. See, I, I don't want to motivate you with guilt. But here's the reality. Jesus knows everything that you've done with your money. So you can look around and go, no one else knows how I spent it. He's aware of how you're doing it. And he thinks it's all his stuff. So just put that you know, into your mind. But let me ask you this question. Imagine that there was something you would get excited to talk to Jesus about with your finances. Is there any line item that he would get to and go, hey, I noticed that you gave this amount or you did this. Uh, Tell me more about that. You go, oh, Jesus, yeah, this is cool. So, so this is what we were, we were realizing, there was this need, and, and so we gave to it, and, and we really wanted us to be generous there. And, and actually that one, I mean, that was more than we had the ability to give. You know, Jesus, I mean, you know what we make. But, but we, we, we sacrificed, and we gave beyond our ability here. And, and man, what, what would you get really excited to tell Jesus about? Oh, Jesus, this is so cool. We were able to do this. Now, now imagine this. Imagine if whatever you got excited about, Jesus says, now let me tell you something. Let me tell you what happened as a result of your generosity. See, when you gave that money here, when you did this thing for this person, whatever. He, here's what that led to. And he begins to tell you things that you would never know otherwise. And, and you just take a step back and you go, I'm amazed that that all happened because of my generosity. So this is what he's inviting us to experience. Jesus knows everything you make. Wouldn't you want to spend it in such a way that you would get so excited to talk to him about it? Rather than pretending, well, I hope he never asks, I hope he he never wonders. I began by saying that we give on average 2.6% of our income away. Now let me ask this question. How did we all agree on that number? How did we all decide that's gonna be the number we give? We're going we're gonna to budget. Do we sit down at our tables and go, all right, let's lay out the budget. Let's start with giving. What's the right amount to give? Let's give 2.6. That seems like the right amount. If I'm going to honor God with this, I'm going to give. No. 2.6 is what you get when it's the afterthought. When you didn't budget around giving. When you didn't make it a priority. When you decided, yeah, we just thought, yeah, we'll just do our thing. And then, yeah, we should probably give something. That's how you get 2.6%. It's an afterthought. Now, next week we're going to talk about how do we start with generosity? How do we practically make this a priority in our lives and then work backwards? But the reality is, how sad if we go, yeah, we just, we just didn't give that much thought. And so we all arrived at a very low number together b- because it was an afterthought. That's pursuing money. That's not pursuing God. I, I think Jesus has something different. He, he's got a different future in mind for us as a church to say, hey, you don't have to be like that. See, our desire— It's to be a generous church. To be a church where others look at us and go, man, we're all better because they're they're, there. We're all better because of this, you know, group in our community. That we would just naturally overflow. That every community we have a campus in would be better because we have a group called Abundant Life Church who is there living in the overflow for the people around them. Now, if you are with us at Easter, we raised a need to you. We said, hey, there's this group called Compassion Connect, and they are meeting the needs of vulnerable girls who have, been, you know, are at risk of being trafficked or have been trafficked. How about in addition to what we do day in and day out at this church, how about we, we, we meet the needs for them? And we were trying to raise $23,000. That would have been an amazing gift for them. And I had no idea. Would we be able to do this? Could, you know, could we raise this amount? And we've told you, but you guys raised $51,000 to meet that need. That is overflow. That is us living in a state of going, no, we're not here for you all to bless us. We're going to bless you. We're going to live out the overflow of what we have. Church, we're just getting started. We want to show these communities this is what overflow looks like. And people will go, I am so glad they're here. Because if they weren't here, we would not be able to do this, this, this. And this. I hope that people look at us and go, what is, how, how do you live with this overflow? Tell me more about this Jesus, because I have no idea how you're overflowing in the midst of your situation right now. You've got a trial going on. You've got extreme poverty going on. How on earth do I see rich generosity coming out of you? We say, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me, and, and I can't help but overflow because of all of this. That's the kind of community that we want to be and so I'll close with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Not on some occasions. Not when everything looks right. Not when all the numbers add up. Not when you're feeling extra abundance. No, no, you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result and thanksgiving to God. People will watch your overflow and they will wonder about your Jesus. And that is the life that he has called us to. May we experience that together. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we want this overflow. We want this appreciation and perspective that we have so much more than we need. That you are so good. You are worthy of trust no matter whether our situation feels great and we feel like we have abundance or if we feel like we are absolutely on the wrong end of these numbers, would you allow us to see the opportunities around us as a privilege that we would urgently plead to be a part of rather than a burden? God, may we be the kind of church that we read about here that, that our communities would be overflowing for the benefit of those around them. God, would you ignite our hearts in this way? And may we see you do unbelievable, supernatural things all around us because we trust you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.